Today is March 8th. This is Verses in Flow. I'm Jennifer. Welcome in and welcome back. We are here to listen, learn, and lean into the Word of God one day at a time, one passage at a time, one moment at a time. Are you meditating on this word? That is, are you uttering it on your lips throughout the day? Remember that word meditate in the Hebrew means to pronounce, to vocalize, to speak, to articulate. It is verbal. To get everything we can out of our time in the word, to get everything we are supposed to get, we need to read it, hear it, see it, study it, feel it, remember it, discuss it, apply it, and share it. Not all these things at once, but on some level, if we are serious about knowing God and really growing in his ways, we need to engage with the word with diligence and intention. And what I personally found is that when my daily or weekly rhythm includes all these instruments, my experience with God is harmonious. It is a richer, deeper, more integrated, intimate encounter. Now that may sound like a lot of work and it can be, but the fact that you're here lets me know that I don't have to convince you that it's worth it. So as we continue on this journey together, let's remember that the word is living and active. It has the power to bring so much depth and meaning. It's a panacea to all our problems, not like a quick fix magic potion, more like an elixir with life-giving, life-sustaining properties that heals us from the inside out but one that we have to consistently take in small doses so that it can be fully absorbed and metabolized by our souls. Let's approach this word with the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's come to feast and be fed, but with a measure of grace too. Let's do what we can in the ways that we can and allow the Spirit of God to do what only He can. Let's get started right now and flow into this word and allow this word to flow into us. Numbers chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 23. The two bugles. God spoke to Moses, make two bugles of hammered silver. Use them to call the congregation together and give marching orders to the camps. When you blow them, the whole community will meet you at the entrance of the tents of meeting. When a bugle gives a single short blast, that's the signal for the leaders, the heads of the clans, to assemble. When it gives a long blast, that's the signal to march. At the first blast, the tribes who were camped on the east set out. At the second blast, the camps on the south set out. The long blasts are the signals to march. The bugle call that gathers the assembly is different from the signal to march. The son of Aaron, the priests, are in charge of blowing the bugles. It's their assigned duty down through the generations. When you go to war against an aggressor, blow a long blast on the bugle so that God will notice you and deliver you from your enemies. Also, at times of celebration, at the appointed feasts and new moon festivals, blow the bugles over your whole burnt offerings and peace offerings. They will keep your attention on God. I am God, your God. The March from Sinai to Paran In the second year, on the twentieth day of the second month, the cloud went up from over the dwelling of the testimony. 
At that, the people of Israel set out on their travels from the wilderness of Sinai until the cloud finally settled in the wilderness of Paran. They began their march at the command of God through Moses. The flag of the camp of Judah led the way, rank after rank under the command of Nashon, son of Amminadab, Nathanael, son of Zuar, commanded the forces of the tribe of Issachar, and Eliab, son of Helon, commanded the forces of the tribe of Zebulun. As soon as the dwelling was taken down, the Gershonites and the Merarites set out, carrying the dwelling. The flag of the camp of Reuben was next with Eliezer, son of Shadur, in command. Shalumiel, son of Zuri Shaddai, commanded the forces of the tribe of Simeon. Eliasaph, son of Duel, commanded the forces of the tribe of Gad. Then the Kohathites left, carrying the holy things. By the time they arrived, the dwelling would be set up. The flag of the tribe of Ephraim moved out next, commanded by Elishama, son of Amihud. Gamaliel, son of Pedazur, commanded the forces of the tribe of Manasseh. Abidon, son of Gideoni, commanded the forces of the tribe of Benjamin. Finally, under the flag of the tribe of Dan, the rear guard of all the camps marched out with Ahazer, son of Ami Shaddai, in command. Pagiel, son of Okran, commanded the forces of the tribe of Asher. Ahira, son of Enon, commanded the forces of the tribe of Naphtali. These were the marching units of the people of Israel. They were on their way. Moses said to his brother-in-law, Hobab, son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We're marching to the place about which God promised, I'll give it to you. Come with us, we'll treat you well. God has promised good things for Israel. But Hobab said, I'm not coming. I'm going back home to my own country, to my own family. Moses countered, Don't leave us. You know all the best places to camp in the wilderness. We need your eyes. If you come with us, we'll make sure that you share in all the good things God will do for us. And so, off they marched. From the mountain of God, they marched three days with the chest of the covenant of God in the lead to scout out a campsite. The cloud of God was above them by day when they marched from the camp. With the chest leading the way, Moses would say, Get up, God. Put down your enemies. Chase those who hate you to the hills. And when the chest was set down, he would say, Rest with us, God. Stay with the many, many thousands of Israel. Camp Tabera. The people fell to grumbling over their hard life. God heard. When he heard, his anger flared. Then fire blazed up and burned the outer boundaries of the camp. The people cried out for help to Moses. Moses prayed to God and the fire died down. They named the place Tibera, Blaze, because fire from God had blazed up against them. Camp Kibroth, Hatava. The misfits among the people had a craving and soon they had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it free. To say nothing of the cucumbers and melons, the leeks and onions and garlic, but nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. Manna was a seed-like substance with a shiny appearance like resin. The people went around collecting it and ground it between stones or pounded it fine in a mortar. Then they boiled it in a pot and shaped it into cakes. It tasted like a delicacy cooked in olive oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna was right there with it. 
Moses heard the whining, all those families whining in front of their tents. God's anger blazed up. Moses saw that things were in a bad way. Moses said to God, Why are you treating me this way? What did I ever do to you to deserve this? Did I conceive them? Was I their mother? So why dump the responsibility of this people on me? Why tell me to carry them around like a nursing mother, carrying them all the way to the land you promised to their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people who are whining to me? Give us meat. We want meat. I can't do this by myself. It's too much. All these people. If this is how you intend to treat me, do me a favor and kill me. I've seen enough. I've had enough. Let me out of here. God said to Moses, Gather together 70 men from among the leaders of Israel, men whom you know to be respected and responsible. Take them to the tent of meeting. I'll meet you there. I'll come down and speak with you. I'll take some of the spirit that is on you and place it on them. They'll then be able to take some of the load of this people. You won't have to carry the whole thing alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves. Get ready for tomorrow when you're going to eat meat. You've been whining to God. We want meat. Give us meat. We had a better life in Egypt. God has heard your whining and he's going to give you meat. You're going to eat meat. And it's not just for a day that you'll eat meat, and not two days, or five, or ten, or twenty, but for a whole month. You're going to eat meat until it's coming out of your nostrils. You're going to be so sick of meat that you'll throw up at the mere mention of it. And here's why. Because you have rejected God, who is right here among you, whining to his face. Oh, why did we ever have to leave Egypt? Moses said, I'm standing here, surrounded by 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I'll give them meat, meat every day for a month? So where is it coming from? Even if all the flocks and herds were butchered, would that be enough? Even if all the fish in the sea were caught, would that be enough? God answered Moses, So do you think I can't take care of you? You'll see soon enough whether what I say happens for you or not. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 21, anointing his head. In only two days, the eight-day festival of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin. The high priests and religion scholars were looking for a way that they could seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. They agreed that it should not be done during Passover week. We don't want the crowds up in arms, they said. Jesus was at Bethany, a guest of Simon the leper. While he was eating dinner, a woman came up carrying a bottle of very expensive perfume. Opening the bottle, she poured it on his head. Some of the guests became furious among themselves. That's criminal, a sheer waste. This perfume could have been sold for well over a year's wages and handed out to the poor. They swelled up in anger, nearly bursting with indignation over her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. You will have the poor with you every day for the rest of your lives. Whenever you feel like it, you can do something for them. Not so with me. She did what she could when she could. She pre-anointed my body for burial. And you can be sure that wherever in the whole world the message is preached, 
what she just did is going to be talked about admiringly. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the cabal of high priests, determined to betray him. They couldn't believe their ears and promised to pay him well. He started looking for just the right moment to hand him over. Traitor to the Son of Man On the first of the days of unleavened bread, the day they prepare the Passover sacrifice, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations so you can eat the Passover meal? He directed two of his disciples, Go into the city. A man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him. Ask the owner of whichever house he enters. The teacher wants to know, Where is my guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a spacious second-story room swept and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples left, came to the city, found everything just as he had told them, and prepared the Passover meal. After sunset, he came with the twelve. As they were at the supper table eating, Jesus said, I have something hard but important to say to you. One of you is going to hand me over to the conspirators, one who at this moment is eating with me. Stunned, they started asking one after another, It isn't me, is it? He said, It's one of the twelve, one who eats with me out of the same bowl. In one sense, it turns out that the Son of Man is entering into a way of treachery well marked by the Scriptures. No surprises here. In another sense, the man who turns him in turns traitor to the Son of Man. Better never to have been born than do this. Psalm 51 Generous in love, God give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt, soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been, my sins are staring me down. You're the one I violated and you've seen it all, seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you, whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then, conceive a new true life. Soak me in your laundry and I will come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me into foot tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation God, and I'll sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God, I'll let loose with your praise. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart-shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem's broken-down walls. 
Then you'll get real worship from us, acts of worship small and large, including all the bulls they can heave onto your altar. Proverbs chapter 10 verses 31 and 32. A good person's mouth is a clear fountain of wisdom. A foul mouth is a stagnant swamp. The speech of a good person clears the air. The words of the wicked pollute it. Okay, so there was a passage we read a couple days ago. It was the March 5th episode, and it is definitely worth rereading if you don't remember it. It was Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, and it is an incredibly important passage in the Bible as it outlines a ritual for when a woman is suspected of adultery. This ritual is referred to by some as the trial of jealousy, quote-unquote, And it appears to be a double standard for women, as the same procedure is not suggested for men in the same situation. This double standard can lead to some confusion, but upon deeper inspection and investigation, we can see that it's actually a way to protect women in a patriarchal society. The ritual began with a man suspecting his wife of being unfaithful. If he had no proof but still had suspicion, he could bring his wife to the priest. The priest would then administer a bitter drink made of holy water and dust from the tabernacle floor. The drink was called the bitter water, and it was believed to have a supernatural quality that would reveal the truth about the woman's fidelity. The woman would be put under oath and required to drink the bitter water. If she was guilty, the water would cause her to suffer and she would be publicly shamed and ostracized for her infidelity. If she was innocent, the water would have no effect and she would be cleared of any wrongdoing. The ritual was not just a means of determining guilt or innocence. It was also a way to reinforce the importance of fidelity in marriage. Now, I recoiled when I first read it, and I'm like, Lord, say it isn't so. This was difficult for me, and I knew there had to be more to it than what met my eye. So, y'all know me, I went digging, and I went to my feminist commentaries first because I figured women scholars who have reviewed this passage may have been a little more eager to discover the deeper meanings behind it. My initial search failed me. They seemed just as upset as I was, and I didn't feel like they offered any real clarity on the passage. So I kept digging, and long story short, I finally came across the most thoroughly researched and articulated treatment on this passage by Sarah J. O'Connor. And I'm just going to read her explanation in full here because it did provide me with that clarity and really helped to settle my spirit on this issue. Alethea, this is for you too. Cheating Wives, The Double Standard and a Bizarre Bible Passage by Sarah J. O'Connor. I don't know why I have a fascination with strange Bible passages, but I do. They represent a challenge, a puzzle I feel obligated to solve, at least in my own mind. One of these is the ancient Israelite process used to determine whether a married woman had messed around a bit on the side, found in Numbers 5:11 through 31. Maybe you've read it, though I don't blame you if you haven't. Tucked away in a less popular part of scripture, undoubtedly getting fewer likes than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we encounter the magical test for the notorious unfaithful wife. 
What was a husband to do if he suspected his right-hand woman but wasn't fortunate enough to catch her in the act? Well, the one thing he was not permitted to do was to take matters into his own hands. No, he had to take her to the priest. If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. That is Numbers 5, 11 through 15. The woman was brought to the priest, true enough, but the priest was not permitted to take things into his own hands either. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Numbers 5, 16. No human judge, jury, or executioner here. No support for community-organized honor killings of wayward women in this Middle Eastern society. The woman was to stand trial before the Lord, the one being who could and would judge her fairly, who knew what had and had not occurred, and who was and was not guilty as charged. The only case in biblical law, as it turns out, where God all-knowing, rather than an earthly representative, was to preside over a human court. This type of trial by ordeal was a typical ancient practice found in various law codes of the era. The person's guilt or innocence was determined by a physical test rather than by the usual court proceedings with testimony and witnesses. If the accused survived the ordeal without any negative effects, they were vindicated by the gods. If not, they were guilty. Babylon had a similar law that involved tossing the suspected adulteress into a raging river. In the unusual case that she survived, the Babylonians believed the gods had intervened to prove her innocence. If she perished, the gods had demonstrated she was guilty as charged. In other words, guilty until proven innocent. The biblical trial was different. Hester Prynne, the protagonist of the book The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, this is a reference to that, stood with loosened hair, held an offering in her hands, and agreed to the outcome of the ordeal with an amen, amen. Then she was given holy water to drink. Mixed into this water were symbolic elements, a bit of dust from the tabernacle floor, along with the curses she would experience if proven guilty, quote-unquote, washed from the scroll upon which the priest had written them. The obscure curses, which functioned as both evidence and punishment, had to do with the falling thigh and swelling abdomen. Right, based on the reference to retaining seed in verse 28, however, many scholars think thigh and abdomen are euphemisms for reproductive organs. Here's how the NIV translates. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her. Her abdomen will swell and her womb will miscarry and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. 
Numbers 5, 27 and 28. Now we're talking. If she was innocent, the water would have no effect on current or future pregnancies, which, by the way, was the most likely outcome. There was nothing in the water, the dust or the curses that was toxic. No arsenic, cyanide or strychnine, no hemlock, nightshade or curare. Innocent until proven guilty. Think about that for a minute. In a world dominated by men, where a man's honor was often valued above a woman's life, the Bible stands out in its protection of women. Remember that the next time you read Numbers, if you ever do, I mean. On the other hand, if our biblical Hester was guilty, she experienced divine judgment that, if she was pregnant, resulted in miscarriage and potentially loss of the ability to bear children at all. A heavy sentence for sure, in a culture that valued a woman's reproductive function above just about everything else. Yet, there was no judgment by human beings, no sentence handed down by a jury of men, and no death penalty, no capital punishment, no honor killing, which is another very important point. The most important fact about this trial, however, is revealed in the divine punishment, loss of baby. This statute was not really about morality or marital unity. It was about inheritance. The husband may have become suspicious because his wife was pregnant and he had reason to doubt the child was his. In a culture where land was gold, where you worked hard to provide for your heirs, where all of this was a ridiculously big deal, messing with the family line was a grievous sin indeed. A man had a right to know if a child was truly his. His wife's bulging belly made the identity of the mother obvious, but was he the father? How could he know for sure? An expectant mother, on the other hand, knows the identity of both parents, at least she ought to. Before the era of DNA testing, our ancient dad was at a disadvantage. Though it may seem like it on first reading, this is not just one more example of the double standard, not at all. It was a leveling of the playing field, a means to provide a husband with the information his wife already possessed. But it did so in a way that, compared to its era and surrounding cultures, was protective of women. Now that's something to remember. Now that's the end of Sarah's article. I hope that helped you as much as it did me with providing additional context and understanding. It is important to approach challenging passages in the Bible with an open mind and heart and not shy away or resist them. We need to go ahead and seek a deeper understanding of their meaning and the message behind them. As we continue to read and study, we may encounter more passages that are difficult to understand or reconcile, especially with our modern day beliefs. However, we can trust that God's wisdom and guidance will help us to navigate these challenges and to grow in our faith. The truth is out there and the truth is knowable. It is also important to note that the Bible was written in a specific historical and cultural context, and some passages may reflect the social norms and practices of that time. As we interpret these passages, we have to keep that in mind too, the historical and cultural context in which they were written, as well as the broader message of the Bible as a whole. 
Ultimately, we know that the Bible is a source of inspiration and guidance for our lives, and we can trust that God's love and grace is present in every single word. Let us continue to seek truth and understanding in all that we do and to approach the Bible with humility, an open heart, and a sense of curiosity. And now, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today with grateful hearts, thanking you for the gift of your word and for the wisdom and guidance that it provides for us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to read and study and investigate the Bible. We ask that you would continue to bless us with discernment and insight as we seek to deepen our understanding of your word. Lord, we know that there are many passages in the Bible that can be challenging and difficult to decipher. We ask that you help us to approach these passages with open hearts and minds and curiosity. Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to ask the hard questions and to seek out those answers and to engage in meaningful discussions with others as we seek to better understand. Finally, Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless and guide us on our journey of faith together. We pray that you would give us the courage to follow your path for our lives, even when it is difficult or it is uncertain. Help us, Lord, to trust in your love and your grace and to know that you are always with us no matter what challenges we may face. Lord, help us to always seek your truth. The truth is knowable, so that means we can find it. Lord, we ask all of these things in your son Jesus's name. Amen. And our affirmation for today, I am a truth seeker and a truth teller and can handle both because I am brave enough to ask the hard questions and strong enough to face the tough answers. I am a truth seeker and a truth teller and can handle both because I am brave enough to ask the hard questions and strong enough to face the tough answers. And our aphorism, perception of the strange is hindered by strangeness. Recognition of the familiar is prevented by familiarity. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being on this odyssey with me. You belong here and we belong together on this journey. I love you. I'll be right here tomorrow waiting for you.